Hey everybody, welcome to Kern Talks, Kern Memorial United Methodist Church's podcast, where we revisit the message from this week's church service. I'm Krista Q, the worship leader and producer at Kern Church. We know you're busy and maybe don't have time to watch the video for a whole service. Well, we got you covered with Kern Talks. With that said, let's hear Reverend Jim Bell's message from January 23rd. Jesus' prayer should and does mean something. Welcome. Welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us in worship with Kern Memorial United Methodist Church of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. We pray this service will be a blessing. Today we are observing the week of prayer for Christian unity. As we will hear, it goes back to 1920 and really goes back to our Lord. And it is a privilege to uh, share this service with you. Again, thank you for joining us, and may you be blessed. Our call to worship, we gather as church the body of Christ. The body of Christ, though many, is one. Let us worship with all of our hearts and souls as church. Our scripture lessons this morning come from John 17, 20 to 26. Then we also have two from 1 Corinthians. I am not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me I also have given to them, so that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and you loved them just as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. And from Corinthians 1, 10 to 13. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers and sisters, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am with Paul, or I am with Apollos, or I am with Cephas, or I am with Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? First Corinthians 12, 25-27 So that there be made no division in the body, but that the parts may have the same care for one another. And if one part of the body suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If a part is honored, all the parts rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body, and individually parts of it. 
And Jesus prayed that they may be one, just as the Father and Son are one. As Christians, we remember Jesus. As Christians, hopefully, we experience Jesus and the living spirit and presence of Jesus. And as Christians, we anticipate Jesus. We await Jesus in the coming of the kingdom. As we remember Jesus, we remember Jesus' life, his, his words, his deeds. We remember um, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. We sometimes may forget Jesus was such a person of prayer, that prayer was so vital to the life and soul of Jesus, and that we find Jesus in prayer at some of the seemingly most significant moments in his life. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, immediately before the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is led into the Spirit, uh, to the wilderness, 40 days in, in the wilderness, and we certainly would believe much of that time was spent in, in prayer and spiritual preparation for his ministry shortly to come. We find Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount teaching them and us uh, how to pray. We find Jesus in Gethsemane praying that decisive prayer of his destiny. We find Jesus praying to the Father on the cross. And also, also we find Jesus' prayer in John 17. The scene is Jerusalem, the upper room, the disciples, what we call Holy Thursday or Maundy Thursday. And as we read about that historic night in each of the Gospels, and especially from John, we find that they have experienced the Passover meal, that Jesus washes the disciples' feet and so sets the example as servants for them and, and for us. We find that Jesus gives some of his most extended teachings. Let not your hearts be troubled, but believe. And we find that Jesus prays. That evening, according to John, uh, as it includes the Last Supper, ends with John 17, an extended prayer. Jesus prays first that the Father would glorify him so that he might glorify the Father. Now this prayer initially may not sound like Jesus at all because Jesus is not at all about himself and about his own self-glory until we realize, especially in the Gospel of John and the letters of Paul, that Jesus' glorification is his crucifixion. And Jesus seems to be praying, Father, I'm ready. My hour has now come. And less than 24 hours later, Jesus will be crucified. 
Jesus then prays for those that God has, has brought into Jesus' presence and care. And Jesus prays that God would watch over them and protect them especially from the evil one. And then the prayer continues as we just heard read that Jesus prays more than once that they would be one, that not only these 12, but the others that have been in Jesus' ministry and others who will come to be reached by the gospel of Christ may be one, just as Father and Son are one. Surely Jesus' prayer matters. Surely Jesus' prayer matters mightily. With all that is going on, with Jesus' death being so soon in the future, much of Jesus' heart is concerned that they would be one. Why does Jesus so pray? And why does Jesus' prayer resonate down through the years? Jesus certainly knew human nature and our propensity for conflict one with another. Jesus had seen his own disciples arguing with one another about who was the greatest among them even after Jesus had just repeated his teaching that he was going to a cross and that they themselves must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. And we know. We know that it hardly took any time for the post-Pentecostal church, the early church, to be in conflict one another. There certainly was the, the major issue over uh, Gentiles being converted, and, and that issue was resolved pretty well in the council at Jerusalem. But we find the Apostle Paul considered to be the earliest Christian writer, and that the letters of Paul considered to be the earliest Christian New Testament writings in their full source. Paul here writing the Corinthian church. Leander Keck has said that Paul wrote occasional letters. That is to say that most of Paul's letters are addressed to a specific church on a specific occasion over specific issues that have emerged in the early church. Paul addresses that troubled Corinthian church as we read the two letters, troubled in so many ways. First and foremost, Paul immediately says, I have heard reports. And as we heard read, he says, I have heard that, that there is arguing and, and dissension among you. Can we be of, of one mind with one another? And then Paul goes so far 
has to ask, is Christ then divided? You are saying, I belong to this part of the church, or I belong to that part of the church, and pulling the church apart in its witness. And Paul asked that question. Is Christ, is the body of Christ divided? Well, sadly, we know that the church was just getting started in its conflicts one with another. A number of years ago, Halford Luckhock, the Yale University chaplain, wrote a brief church history entitled Glorious Line of Splendor. And Dr. Luckhock traces the, the high points and wondrous moments, so many of them, in the history of the church. But if we are honest with ourselves as church, there is another stream of lived history, just as, the, as there is in our personal histories, just as there is in our national history that we would rather not read about, know about, be taught about, learn about. And immediately, there were the issues and the personal conflicts and, uh, over Christian practices of what to do or what not to do, over doctrine, sometimes over minute parts, even Greek words and creeds of, of doctrines, coming up to the 4th century, and it took Emperor Constantine to intervene. It was Emperor Constantine in the 4th century who convened and paid for the Council of Nicaea. It was Emperor Constantine who wanted Christians to get their act together and to live in greater unity. And out of that council came the Nicene Creed that is in our United Methodist hymnal and, and even the movement to to finalize the New Testament canon. But the conflicts have continued in, uh, in church history, and ironically, in 1046, in Constantine's namesake city of Constantinople, the archbishop of Constantinople was excommunicated by the Roman church, and thus became what was called the Great Schism, between the Western and the Eastern Church and the birth, birth of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And then we know came the, uh, in the late 15th century and early 16th century, especially the Protestant Reformation, and Martin Luther and John Calvin and Hewitt Zwingli and host of others, and the, uh, the splintering of uh, that part of of Christendom that extended down through the years. And within no time, uh, there were groups that were splitting off from uh, uh, the Reformed churches. And in our tradition, the, the Church of England uh, split, of course, from uh, the Roman Church. And King Henry VIII had 
some great Christians, including his advisors, killed, beheaded, because they would not acknowledge him, the king, as head of the church, rather than uh, Jesus. And, and from the Church of England came the, the Methodist movement, uh, beginning as a reform movement within the Church of England, and, and John Wesley affirming that he never intended to form a, a separate church, but in 1784 was the formal beginning in America, in Baltimore, of the Methodist uh, Episcopal Church. And then it didn't take very long for other groups to split off from the Mother Methodist Church. There was the AME Church and the AME Zion Church, the Methodist uh, Protestant Church, and, and various others that, that split off. And then coming uh, you know, down through the ages, of course, the, the incredible split in churches in uh, the pre-Civil War era over the issue of, of slavery. And then coming into the, the 20th century, and this is depressing, isn't it? That we find that in the early 20th century, there were public feuds between Protestants and Catholics. We know in Northern Ireland and elsewhere became bloody and, and murderous. And then there became uh, public conflicts between uh, denominations. And then, uh, coming more toward the present, as in the mid-19th century, uh, Tensions within denominations as the United Methodist Church is certainly facing right now, as all denominations have or will. Some of them don't know it yet. And some large denominations now are facing some issues of race and church misconduct that the United Methodists have been facing up to for, for years. But there always have been issues and always will be issues. And then coming down to the uh, local churches. And sometimes the most conflicted churches or the smallest of uh, churches and with human nature and with uh, church histories and with uh, personal histories and, and community issues and, and biblical uh, you know, disagreements on and on. There has always been, I would say, within each and every congregation uh, anywhere, those tensions. Those tensions that the evil one loves, that not just life issues to face, but that would, would pull us apart. And surely Jesus grieves. Surely we are breaking Jesus' heart when we fail to, to live as fully as the Holy Spirit would grant us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the body of Christ, though many parts, though one. 
But God has always called his church to do something about it. And today, we do celebrate this week of prayer for Christian unity. This observance, formerly by this name, began back, back in 1920, when, when Father John Walson, a Franciscan friar from San Francisco, California, had this God vision that was immediately picked up by the Roman Catholic Church. And then the, we Protestants jumped in in, in 1920s, and then in 1948, with the formation of the World Council of Churches, that organization has, has taken it on, and, and ever, ever since, uh, there has been this worldwide movement or attempt that not too many people know about anymore to pray, to pray as did Jesus, uh, to pray all together at the same time to Pray specifically for Christian unity. In all of this, there have been specific attempts to pray together and for various parts of the body to actually be together. And so there have been community-wide joint services. There have been pulpit exchanges. There have been interdenominational or Protestant Catholic joint mission projects and each time the the joint prayers and the the being together and experience one another as brothers and sisters in Christ have been blessed and so we join in gladly join in this worldwide effort there there are those today this week, that are praying with us and for us as we pray for them that we will be one in Christ. But we know from Jesus and Paul that the real answer is spiritual. Paul approaches it and it is out of this conflict that comes Paul's wondrous teaching that the church is a body, not an organization. Not an institution, but a body, the body of Christ. And each part of the body has a part for its own, and each part of the body just doesn't all go off and do its own thing, but is needed and is together. And Jesus, in his prayer, guides us to the Trinity. That just as the Father, Son, and Spirit are three in one, and one in three, and Father, I pray that they may be one, just as Father and Son are one. The ultimate answer, as always, is love. Each worship service should be a call to love. Each day should be Jesus' invitation to love. At the end of that 1 Corinthians 12, read by Chris, Paul speaks of a still more excellent way. And what is that? 
Paul takes us immediately to 1 Corinthians 13. We call the love chapter. Faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Jesus, in the midst of that long prayer in John 17, this is how that, that prayer ends. I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Surely, Jesus' prayer matters. Jesus' prayer on the final earthly night of his life matters. Matters mightily. Matters still. Matters as much as ever. So, Jesus, may we join in your prayer. May we pray. Gracious God, how we thank you that the scriptures would take us right into Jesus' heart as nothing is more intimate than a person's prayer. That Jesus' fervent prayer, may we make it our prayer as much as the Lord's prayer. How this Jesus' prayer really lives out and fulfills the Lord's prayer and, and your very call for us to follow Jesus. Oh, Christ, lead us forward into this worship and especially into our mission as church. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. And now we are privileged to share a, a time of covenant for Christian unity to be led by the Kern Memorial Church uh, lay leaders, Lyman Balker, David Bradshaw, and, and Steve Paul, as they speak to us and lead us. I'm Lyman Valker. I normally attend the 11 o'clock service because I like to be a member of the church choir family. Um, I also enjoy being involved with the family and fellowship, which we have every Wednesday night. We get the opportunity to come and, and break bread together and fellowship together with all members of the entire church. And mostly, I have been so happy that over the past few months, I've been traveling and I've been able to enjoy being a part of current church by this service that is being brought to you online. Thank you. My name is David Bradshaw, and I know that people come to Kern in lots of ways. We came uh, because of Wednesday nighters originally and joined the 830 service and uh, one of those very first Sundays, Caroline, our daughter, who was very small at the time, marched right down the center aisle and sat on the second row, and we've, we've sat there ever since. And, 
you know, the last 24 months, we've all had to learn to be flexible in how we worship, and um, it's been tough, but we've been thankful that we've been able to uh, come to worship at the 11 o'clock service uh, to continue our faith journey, and uh, every Sunday that we can, uh, we're still there on the second row, and we really appreciate Kern, the church, for giving us that worship opportunity. In the summer of 1988, my wife and I were overwhelmed by the greeting we received here at Kern on the morning of our first visit. So many different people, so many different greetings, so many different styles of greetings, but absolutely unified in the result and its irresistibility. We, uh, we never made it to the other five or six churches we intended to visit as we began our life together. And here, more than 33 years later, our membership and relationship to the congregation here at Kern remains strong. Over the years, I think Kern has been at its best, at least in my opinion, when we try to build some consensus around some new and different concept. And more importantly, perhaps put ourselves out there a little bit in pursuit of that concept. Examples that come to mind quickly include when we built this Family Life Center and the Narthex that we have, when we took on a $1 million building project in the early 1990s when we could have spent that money on a lot of different projects, when we started a contemporary worship service here at this church to meet some new and different needs, when that was a very uh, unusual idea and even a controversial idea when it began. When we reached out to the community and built relationships in a very new and marvelous way when we began the execution of a grocery distribution program called Angel Food a lot of years ago, and the relationships we built with others and even in our own congregation were unbelievably built. Finally, maybe that we can worship together in so many different ways, so many different styles of worship have been maintained over the years, including this virtual service, which, as David mentioned and Lyman mentioned, is sort of a on-the-fly response to the pandemic. And so all those things just cause me to think, what's next? What can be new? What can we reach out and put ourselves out there for? And we look forward to that possibility in the years to come. And to each and every one of us as church, do you as church, Kern Memorial United Methodist Church, accept the privilege and responsibility of being one in Christ, the body of Christ with many diverse parts being one body, being together and serving together, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, we willingly and joyfully accept this privilege and responsibility in our hearts and souls, in our actions. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. Thank you. Indeed, we are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. 
And Jesus prayed that they may be one, that we may be one, with the result that the world would know that the Father had sent Jesus. May God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit bless you and keep you. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to reach out to Kern Memorial United Methodist Church or see entire services, you can visit our YouTube channel, Kern Memorial United Methodist Church, and remember to like and subscribe for updates. You can also visit us on our Facebook page at Kern Memorial United Methodist Church. Thanks and have a blessed day.